You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. Up in Lansing, there's always something going on. Votes on gun rights and LGBT civil rights are slated for the coming weeks. and We've seen a recent vote on abortion. We're going to talk about all that and more. I'm Josh Barker. Joining me today is State Representative Andrew Fink, who represents Michigan State House District 35. That's the entirety of Hillsdale and Branch Counties in the city of Hudson and Lenawee County. Thank you for joining us, Representative Fink. Thank you, Josh. A series of 13 bills regarding firearms was introduced in the legislature shortly after our last conversation. And it's about what we had expected, what you had mentioned uh, at the time, the sales and use tax exemptions for firearm safety devices, adding firearms generally to existing restrictions on the sale of pistols, making all state-owned or leased buildings gun-free zones, and probably the biggest change, adding a state red flag law. That means that a family member, former romantic partner, law enforcement officer, or mental health professional could request what would be called an extreme risk protection order against an individual, which, if approved by a judge, would result in the immediate confiscation of firearms and prohibition on the purchase of any new firearms. So when you're looking at all these proposals together, what's your reaction? Well, overall, Josh, there's not really one of these bills that I believe I can support. I think you're, you're right to draw particular attention to the red flag, the so-called red flag law. But there are problems, I think, with each of them. When you have a set of issues like this, where there is expressed constitutional language, not only in our state constitution, but of course also the federal constitution, which has since the, uh, the McDonald case, the Supreme Court says, uh, applies against the states in this context. You have to be on the lookout. You, know, you have to be particularly cautious. And I think that, that if you're a legislator and, you, and there are issues that you know are in the realm of something that, that uh, we've taken time to enshrine in our Constitution as a right, um, you should be particularly diligent. And that means in, in a case like this, you know, there, are, there are sort of a layer of issues. I mean, the first is a philosophical question that I think you and I have probably talked about before, about what citizenship is supposed to be like in the United States. The most fundamental unit of government in the country is the citizen. And that's why rights like speech the right to keep and bear arms, uh, the right to practice religion, all of these things that are sort of fundamental to uh, uh, the way a person can conduct himself in a free country, you know, that's why those are the, the first things that we think of when we think of constitutional rights. Of course, there are more than that. The Constitution itself says that there are rights other than those that are expressly written down. But there's a reason that those are the ones that are written down. It's because they're so core to uh, the identity of, of being an American citizen. And the state constitution goes a little bit uh, well, I don't, know, I don't want to say further, but it's, it's a little more expressed about part of the idea here, which is that it says that the, the citizen has the right to keep their arms for the defense of himself and the state. And I, I think that's a really beautiful way to understand that the, the responsible citizen, uh, a, a citizen responsible for voting, a citizen responsible for you know, working and paying taxes is also a citizen responsible for the security of himself and the security of the state. And interestingly, a lot of the proponents of this gun legislation are also skeptics of the efficacy of policing. And yet, uh, rather than rely on the citizen to provide his or her own defense and the defense of you know, his neighbors, um, they, would, they would instead say that you're stuck with only the police in this context. So that's sort of a set of philosophical problems um, or, or problems of, uh, of approach to, to you know, what, what methods should we be using to reduce gun violence or all forms of violent crime? which obviously is something that I do think pretty much all citizens of good faith agree with. We'd like that number to be as low as possible. Um, but uh, that doesn't mean that, that our constitutional rights should be on the table as a, as a way to, to, to deal with other people breaking the law. So, so that, that issue of approach is one thing. And then there are practical problems as well. Um, there are also kind of other forms of um, constitutional problems. 
the red flag law in particular, the red flag bill in particular. Uh, I co-authored an op-ed. I'm the vice chair of judiciary, as I know you and I have talked about, the uh, Republican vice chair of uh, our criminal justice committee, and I co-authored an op-ed a couple of weeks ago describing some of the problems that are really about due process in this bill. Um, And let me just put it to you this way. All those people that you mentioned uh, can petition the court to remove your firearms. The court can use whatever you say uh, and anything else the court finds relevant um, to make a decision that it is more likely than not that you're a danger, you know, uh, of the of the type that should have your firearms uh, removed. And that's without you ever saying anything about it. So the first time you find out could very well be uh, the police knocking at your door. You know, the practical problem there of you know, often a very intense situation, a tense problem uh, that a person has, has perhaps exhibited such that a per, even in a good faith, again, even in a good faith situation, a person has, has sort of said, I think this guy's got such a problem that uh, it's dangerous for him to even possess any firearms. And then the first way you find out about it, it's either uh, a policeman knocking at your door and telling you that he's there to confiscate your firearms, or alternatively, um you know, maybe that same person sending what will, uh, whether intentionally or not, wind up being an inflammatory message. You know, the police are going to come take your guns. The judge just signed an order. Uh, and, you know, in some cases that might be followed with a ha-ha or, uh, uh, you know, some other sort of taunt. So it, it is a scary situation, I think, to put a citizen in that without ever getting a chance to, to weigh in, the police will show up and take away, you know, really any form of your property, but but in this case, you know, property that is has been understood to be sort of uh, a part of the normal rights of American citizenship. You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm Josh Barker, and we have Representative Fink with us. Uh, talking about red flag laws, one of the potential remedies to the problem is trying to add due process here to the scenario. I and mean, right now, it's like, like a restraining order, the extreme protective order. You would only have the side bringing the order testifying before the court, the individual who they're trying to take away the firearms from, would not know this is happening until it has happened, likely. So perhaps a way to get around these issues is to say, well, actually, both sides have to be present at that first hearing so that there is a little bit more due process before the initial confiscation happens. Do you think something like that is a potential remedy? Because there's a lot of concern about people knew things were up before some of these shootings, family members said we felt uneasy, but they had no remedy. So, So the idea is that red flag laws could potentially be that remedy is there a way to make it align with due process or is that just incompatible in its nature well in a certain sense josh i think the answer is is that well we already have processes by which the state does uh uh limit a person's right to manage his own property you know we we already if a person is found by a probate court to not be capable of managing his or her own property or even his or own kind of you know, schedule and things like that. I mean, I don't mean to, to make light of this, but the famous case of the conservator over Britney Spears' property is maybe the familiarity that, that many uh, folks who otherwise wouldn't know about this um, would, would learn about. But, you know, that's that's also a case where even with the kind of normal court processes, you know, she, she felt that her rights were being interfered with the entire time. And that can certainly still happen. But at least in that case, she did have her lawyer there and and uh, able to kind of articulate this. So we have always had a kind of process where a person who is a danger to himself or others and essentially 
um, has has uh, shown some sort of um, predilection to violate the rights of others uh, has some kind. You know, there's been there's always been some kind of process that is about that. The change here would be a couple of things. I mean, one would be uh, without at least giving the the respondent or the defendant a chance to weigh in. I mean, that would be a major change. Um, and I don't, I have not heard that that's something that would be on the table from the drafters or the supporters of these bills, that they would, they would have a uh, full-blown hearing first. Um, and secondly, it, you know, the, the, the trouble, one of the troubles that I have with this whole set of issues is that it sort of winds up being about the firearm rather than about the individual or the person. You know, if a person is a danger to himself or others, um, it is unlikely that the only way in which that person might be a danger is by possession of a firearm. Um, the the numbers being what they are, there are still you know instances that we can probably all recall of you know people committing acts of terror with other forms of weapons, be they explosives, cars driving through crowds, knives, whatever. Um, and so, by making it about the firearm, you're really kind of, in my opinion, losing track of the of the uh, evidently mental, mentally ill person in the first place. So I, I, I think that, that there's, there, there have always been processes by which a person who is a danger to himself or others can be sort of constitutionally uh, evaluated. You know, and we have, in extreme cases, we've always had psychiatric hospitals and whatnot. Uh, but I don't, I don't know that the, the people that support this legislation are willing to put the same kind of normal safeguards um, and processes in place for this because they seem to have this idea that a firearm is just inherently different and that's what makes the case and that's sort of what, what creates the issue rather than the person's mental state and predilection to, to perhaps cause harm by any means that the person has access to. I want to turn our discussion to House Bill 4003, which would amend the state's Civil Rights Act, adding to the protected classes. Right now, discrimination on the basis of religion, race, color, national origin, age, sex, height, weight, familial status, or marital status, that's all prohibited by law. This bill would add to that list sexual orientation and gender identity or expression. Employers, educational institutions, and places of public accommodations all must abide by these restrictions, the bill was introduced at the beginning of the term in January. I mean, it's 4003, so it's the third bill uh, introduced, high priority for Democrats. The vote is likely to come to the House floor soon. What's your reaction looking at it? And particularly, as far as the practical implications go, uh, would adding sexual orientation or gender identity to the protected classes at the state level change much, uh, considering the Supreme Court's interpretation of federal law a year ago in Bostock v. Clayton County? Yeah. Josh, I actually think it wouldn't, even without the, uh, so the, the Bostock ruling wouldn't have controlled this matter. Well, w not in every context, because that was simply about the federal employment statute, as I understand it. And this, our, our Civil Rights Act covers employment and public accommodations and education and sort of everything. And so the Roush World case uh, in, from the Michigan Supreme Court last summer sort of stands in the place of Bostock uh, in this analysis. I actually think that practically for most people, there probably wasn't much effect of that case. Um, I think that, you know, most, say, wedding venues are uh, are hosting same-sex weddings as well as traditional weddings or celebrations of them. I think that most employers uh, do not seek to know a person's sexual orientation prior to uh, hiring them and don't find it 
particularly relevant most of the time. So I think that the practical effect is actually pretty limited. One of the practical effects that would uh, that, that might go beyond the, the Rauschwald case, or at least it, it raises the question, is whether religious institutions will be expressly accepted. And, you know, my fear is that there will not be any amendment to the original language here. And so we'll wind up being really the only state, uh, the Michigan Catholic Conference has a helpful chart on this, the only state that really doesn't make any accommodation for uh, religious institutions, schools, charities, um, anything uh, beyond and, and, you know, arguably even including uh, a church itself. So that would, I think, put us as an outlier in a, in a, in a dangerous way because it, it would sort of suggest that uh, the promoters of this legislation uh, wouldn't have a problem with us going even beyond Colorado. And right now, Colorado, every like three years, is getting its hands slapped by the Supreme Court because they're refusing to accommodate, you know, even uh, closely held businesses uh, in their public accommodations law with similar sort of non-discrimination efforts. And, uh, and the Supreme Court has, I think, a couple of times, certainly in the, in the first Jack Phillips case, the, the, the Kate Baker case, you know, sort of corrected Colorado on that. Uh, but Colorado's still at it. They're back in the Supreme Court again this year. And, uh, you know, my, my fear is that Michigan is going to become another Colorado where there's really no practical effect in the way some of these closely held businesses or even religious charities or schools are um, are behaving. No one is really harmed by it in the first place, uh, and yet the state is sort of spending its time and taxpayer money going after a very small group of citizens uh, for for little p- practical benefit and really not uh, serving the purpose that they are claiming to serve. Now, one of the objections that we've heard mainly at the federal level with adding something like a religious exemption is that if you allow it to apply to regular business owners, they say, well, this basically defeats the entire purpose of adding an anti-discrimination statute into law. Um, But then on the flip side, uh, the other uh, argument that's been made is that churches and religious organizations need not worry as they already have protections in the courts with ministerial exceptions and whatnot. Uh, what's your reaction to that? Do you think that these arguments that there is no need for these religious exemptions uh, perhaps downplay the risk, or do you think there might be some merit there? Yeah, I guess I have, I have a couple things to say. I mean, the, the first is to say that it will be the exception that sort of consumes the rule, I think it's pretty ridiculous. And again, I think plenty of, you know, say, uh, Christian or Muslim business owners in Michigan uh, who own, uh, you know, whatever, a... Uh, an insurance agency or a uh, bakery or, uh, or any other sort of norm- normal business, a, a, a construction company or, or an accounting firm, they might be religious. They might have religious opinions about traditional marriage being the most appropriate form of, uh, you know, lifelong union and that the state should support it. Uh, but, but many of those people are still not like, uh, you know, averse to hiring a person who disagrees with them or even lives a lifestyle that disagrees with that uh, to work their cashier stand or on a construction site or whatever. So I don't actually think that the practical change um, for, uh, for, for most employers of, of different kinds is I, I just disagree that there's any, any risk at all that, that protecting religious employers would consume the, the rest of this policy. I think that's, that's pretty ridiculous. Um, 
As for the idea that there's already a background protection of the First Amendment, and of course also, the, the, in this case, the Elliott Larson Act's explicit protection of religious liberty, um, I don't think that's much of an answer for a couple of reasons. One is uh, the, the protection of religious entities um, at most just creates kind of like a, uh, an issue, and it's really about the, the Civil Rights Act is really about individuals, and so for employers, I don't think that that's much consolation, the, the, the text that's already in the act. But secondly, the, to rely only on the background of, well, the Supreme Court has come up with this ministerial exception, which is essentially based on the First Amendment. And so if you're the, the kind of school where uh, all the teachers are treated as ministers, and so in fact, the, the Supreme Court case that recently had this involved my own church body, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate, where the teachers are given an, sort of an official call. Um, and so they were, they, my memory is they were kind of okay, or at least that was a factor in the case, but a school that's a little more informal about it might not be. Well, that's, that's not the most robust protection for a right. And, you know, Justice Kavanaugh has made this point before in some of his cases. The courts are not the only entity of government that you should look to to vindicate your rights as a citizen. You know, the sheriff uh, and the police department, the uh, uh Local city council and county commission, of course, the legislature, um, and the, the rest of the apparatus of government, they all bear the same responsibility to uh, watch out for the rights of, our, of the citizens. So to sort of just say, well, the courts will sort it out if we did this wrong, that's not an attitude I would take to this or any other issue. Every elected official has an obligation, according to their own oath, to govern constitutionally. And so uh, farming out your constitutional analysis or your, your, your concerns for your citizens' rights uh, or your concerns for your citizens' benefits to another portion of the government, uh, that's really not an approach that I think we should ever take. I mean, absent an issue where, where there's a clear responsibility for a particular you know, mechanism, obviously I, as, the, as a state representative, I'm not, I'm not seeking to become the prosecutor or the judge or, or some, some other role that or the governor that's assigned to another another uh, officer of the of the government, uh, but when it comes to analyzing the work that I am constitutionally uh, supposed to do, um, I'm always going to do it with a view towards vindicating the rights of the citizens um, and accomplishing the goals of the government within the the framework that the citizens have authorized us to work in. You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. I'm Josh Barker, and we have Representative Fink with us. A huge part of the 2022 election was the issue of abortion. Prop 3 was on the ballot and passed, and Governor Whitmer and Attorney General Nessel had promised either way that they would uh, be trying to get the 1931 law uh, restricting abortion fought in the courts and struck down. Well, the House just took action, passing House Bills 4006, 31, and 32, all repealing the 1931 law. Uh, in mentions of the law and other statutes. Now it's headed to the Senate. Uh, with all of this, there was some uncertainty about exactly what the limits surrounding Prop 3 would be on abortion. How how late would abortion be allowed? Uh, with this repeal and pending Senate action, uh, what is the state of abortion in Michigan as you see it? W- what are the legal limits? It, well, if this act is repealed, I mean, this is what I would say, Josh. I tried to get this conversation. I tried to, to, to get the sponsor of, um, of the lead bill here and the, the the proponents generally to explain what their answer to that question is, and that's for a couple of reasons. One is uh, they won the Prop Three argument. You know, these the same people that wanted this bill to go through in general were proponents of Prop Three, and so 
they said often that the opponents who were concerned that there would be essentially no limits with the adoption of Prop 3 on abortion in Michigan were wrong. And so I've been asking, well, then what are they? I mean, you won the argument. You, you got this thing passed. What are the limits now? And specifically, I pointed out a couple of times, first in committee and then on the floor, um, that the uh, that the act that is being repealed, law is being repealed, which is MCL 750.14 and some others, but that's the primary, uh, you know, the so-called 1931 law, uh, that, that that law is the one by which uh, multiple prosecutions have happened for committing abortions that were not protected by the Roe versus Wade framework. Most recently, the most recent one I know about that, that I have some detail on is in 2019, there's a court of appeals case affirming a conviction for violation of that statute when a stepfather, I guess I'll, I'll try to, to clean this up for radio a little bit, but brutally abused uh, his stepdaughter and eventually uh, committed a series of acts that terminated a pregnancy that he had created um, in a 16-year-old in a 16-year-old stepdaughter. He was prosecuted for a variety of things, including violating MCL 750.14, the 1931 law, and the jury convicted him of doing that, and the Court of Appeals upheld the conviction. It's during the time when Roe was, was in force. And so what I've been asking them to tell us is, if this was simply to restore Roe, if the so-called Prop 3 was, was, uh, um, was to restore Roe, it's now Article 1, Section 26, I think, of our state constitution, uh, then that case should still be allowed to proceed because during the row, the time in which Roe governed the state, um, that, that action was found constitutional. By repealing it, a prosecutor will no longer have that tool to, to prosecute such an offender who's done something truly heinous and that no one has at least been willing to say they think is justified. I mean, that, was, that was an abortion co- uh, conducted without the woman's consent um, and with no medical indication that it was necessary. Uh, so no one has, has been willing to say, well, I think that abortion was just fine. And so then I'm standing there saying, then what will make it illegal now if this is repealed? And the answer is there are other parts of the law, according to these, the proponents, there are other parts of the law that would still make it illegal. And when I ask, well, what are they? I've got nothing in response. I'm not aware of them. Uh, I've been pointing this out to the media uh, consistently so, yeah, I think that re- the repeal of this will leave women in Michigan vulnerable to bad actors. I mean, think of the, the case I just described to you. Uh, there's no world in which that woman would have been um, in a uh, an abortion clinic or a hospital or a doctor's office because the it was very important to the perpetrator of that crime that the pregnancy itself not be discovered by anyone else. So... It, the, the punishment for that person like, is not going to be um, uh, found by taking away his doctor's license or something like that. So, yeah, I think that, this, that there are major problems here. Um, the, the, the clarity on whether we should understand our Constitution now to exceed the, the um, framework of Roe versus Wade or not, you know, there's either a lack of honesty or a lack of understanding by the proponents of these bills themselves. And I find the entire situation very disturbing. And I'm going to keep drawing light to it as I can. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for joining us. Representative Fink, you've been listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. Thank you. 